Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back. This is episode 27. We're going to be doing a bit of a roundup of some of the history of app-driven board games. Potentially a hot topic, something that does split people on how they feel about it. We're going to dive into that, kind of get a feel for where they've come from, where they were, what they're looking like as they move forward. I'm Ian, your captain, of course, joined by Matt and Aaron. How you guys doing? Hi, hi. Hoy, I uh, I thought for a split second there that you were going to start singing uh, Cotton Eye Joe. You, where did they come from? Where did they go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? But anyway, you didn't though. So good job. I, I kept I kept it together. Some of us some of us have standards. Then <laughs> you're on the wrong show. It's yeah. true. We are going to jump right into our soapbox, Matt. I know you got a fun one for us. What is your soapbox? Do you know where you were ten years ago on this very day? Eleven, eleven, eleven. Do you know where you were? I know where I was in a GameStop buying Skyrim for the Xbox 360, like a big nerd. Like ran out to go get it. Uh, that's right, everybody. It's ten years. Thanks, Uncle Todd Howard for the greatest game of all time and all of its weird bugs and flaws. Uh, probably not a great fit for a board game podcast to talk about a, a video game, but I just want to mention it's uh, a milestone day in nerd culture. Uh, Skyrim is out, and uh, I'm going to buy it again. So I wanted to... This is partly a, a plea for help, a cry for help. I'm going to buy Skyrim, the Skyrim 10th anniversary thing uh, that they just put out. I'm going to probably buy it. Uh, that's stupid. Uh, Skyrim does have a board game that's out now, though, in fundraising on GameFound. The Elder, uh, Elder, the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim Adventure Game. Uh, it, the Adventure Game. Yeah, that's what it's called. It looks, uh, it looks pretty cool to me, a Skyrim super fan. It looks pretty interesting also to me, board game critic, aficionado of, uh, fantasy adventure games. It's got some of those wandering around the world, having encounters and adventure vibes. It looks a little bit Euro-y in some... Well, that's probably not fair. It's definitely a dice-chunking adventure game. But the way it deals with its stats is a lot more intricate and thinky uh, than uh, at least the way it looks in the presentation. A lot of this is unknown. A lot of marketing speak here. Looks cool. Looks fun. Would love to get it, but it's crazy expensive. It is... Basically, it's like a hundred dollars for the base game, <laughs> and then up to three hundred dollars for the all-in, all the tchotchkes and bonuses package. I, uh, even me, a Skyrim super fan, I don't know that I could quite justify spending a hundred bucks on a uh, adventure board game version. What do you guys think about that? I, for one, think it's incredibly interesting that apparently they have run out of platforms to release Skyrim on, so they're now just releasing it as a board game. So that's that that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, they've tried everything. Uh you know, the Skyrim Adventure Corn Maze is coming in uh twenty twenty two. I mean a, a few years ago it came out for and this is this is not a joke, uh you you could get uh Skyrim on your Amazon smart device. I don't want to say it in case anyone's listening. Uh that you could, it was like a, Alexa, play Skyrim. <laughs> I mean, that's honest to goodness. Yes, it was like a, it was like a, a text adventure, except you would say, "I swing my sword at the skeleton, and cast fireball at the dragger," and uh, because you know Todd just needed another twenty bucks, so he was like, "Well, let's publish it again here." 
Well, you know, I got a lot of feelings about that. Uh, I do love this video game. I was so thrilled, though, when this Kickstarter was announced. I guess to, to bring it back to board games, the topic of the show, was so thrilled. Uh, a few years ago, another Skyrim board gaming experience came out, but it was a skirmish miniatures battle game, which sounded super boring and off uh, brand, really, for Skyrim. So this is more what I was looking for when I heard they were making a board game of it, like a big map and lots of adventures and encounters and dice to chunk. Uh, just cannot quite stomach those prices. I think uh, makes me think of Eric Lane's comments a while back about prices just continuing to uh, go up. And ugh, I don't know. The infamous uh, board game bubble that I occasionally mention on the show. It feels like we're getting closer and closer to it. Anyway, that's my soapbox. Skyrim. It's definitely going to be interesting to see what it looks like when it actually comes out, and I'm sure that you will get it. I probably will. We're going to move on to our game. We're going to do some bitter board gamers where I read out some one-star reviews from Board Game Geek, and you guys try to guess the game that goes with it. You guys are ready? Yes. Alrighty. Your first review. I didn't really enjoy this much at all. Dull, abstract, cutthroat, unfair, not a fan. It reminds me of that old 80s computer game where you have two-player snake and have to block the other person in. I can't imagine ever choosing to play this with anyone. Two-player snake where you have to block someone in. Like, that's like the only mechanic hint that we've gotten out of that. I mean, are they talking about Suro? Ooh, not talking about Suro, oh, actually. Oh, that's a good guess, though. Because uh, I was going to get mad. Well, one, Suro's not two-player. In fact, that would be... A completely you can boring... do it two player but you can but that feels terrible yeah. it feels like the wrong way to play Sarah uh okay um what's like that though what's a, a line driven game I don't know man all right let me give you a second review here real quick pure abstract game very unforgiving I hate games that start interesting with a lot of possibilities and go down ending up playing themselves pure abstract that plays itself. Oh, this is fascinating. Mm. Like, it, is it like I, I know it's just because you poisoned the well there, but it it still kind of sounds like Sorrow. This kind of does. It feels like. <laughs> is it like Blocus? Blockus? It is not Blockus. It is not Blockus. All right, so it's it's a game that Aaron, I know that you enjoy. We have talked about this a little bit recently, actually. Is it Battle Sheep? It's Battle Sheep. Are you? What? <laughs> Battle Sheep. How does that play itself? Are you kidding me? The game is all about goading your friends into making bad choices. Like, Would you say it's kind of a social deduction game? <laughs> no, because no, I enjoy Battleship, so... I did not. Yeah, I, I don't, it felt, feels a little harsh. I think That's... The, there's, there's a depth of strategy to that game that I think a lot of people miss. I love the people that like feel the need to critically analyze a game called Battleship. I mean, you know going in like <laughs> that's either for you or not. This is a game called Battleship, and it's about right. sheep. Right. Um, this is probably not for me, serious-minded board gamer. We are going to move on to our second game. The first review. A lava lamp of a game. You watch what happens for a few minutes and then shrug. A lava lamp of... I... That sounds fun, actually. Just an ambient game lie. that you I'm not <laughs> that puts lie. out a warm glow. I am keeping that in my my roster of things I can say critically at the table. Like, a lava just a lava lamp of a game. Just kind of look <laughs> at it and shrug. I've oftentimes referred to you as a lava lamp of a guy. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. 
It's a fantastic review. I'm going to give you a second one since that one is a little bit vague. This is not an attempt to say I dislike the experience, but this does fail to meet my definition of a game as there's no control. What is like so what game would this be where you just you feel totally passive and it's just like unfolding around you in a ambient and weird way? Is this a game that I've played, Ian? It is a game you've played. Really? Yeah. It is not ringing any bells. Is All it a right, game well, that I like? <laughs> it is a game that you like. Oh, oh wow. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I know. Is it Suro? <laughs> it's Suro! <laughs> what? <laughs> That's stupid. That game is not a uh, lava lamp. Uh, no, it's way that... more tense than that. Yeah, that's... I mean... Okay, so when you're playing Suro, like, <laughs> your choice is narrow by design. You have fewer cards... You have fewer right, opportunities like, to play. That's the point it. of it. But that is the point of it, right? And also that sense of like, actually, you know what? I'm gonna come. I've come full circle in just these ten seconds. It is a lava lamp of a game because lava lamps are all about kind of like spacing out and chilling out, and that's that's what Zero is. It truly is a. It's a Zen game. It is really. You kind of just clear your mind, play the cards where they lay, have a good time, slide your little dragon stone down the paths. It probably is a lava lamp of a game. Yeah. The general consensus in a lot of the people that did not enjoy the game is that it's not actually a game, and there's nothing that you can do. Like, it just, uh, like you just watch what happens, which I, I, I can see. You have so many decisions at the beginning of the game, though. Like, this well, is not like a prescribed, you, you always have decisions need to do at the this. Beginning of the game. You don't have so many decisions, but you have decisions. Uh, yeah, it's gotta, not... Like, do I want to move you? Do I want to move me? Like, how do I want to... I mean, the core tension of Desuro is like, how aggressive? Do I want to move toward the other players in an attempt to go after them, or do I want to evade them? That's one choice, and maybe that's too binary for like some people. But that's the core tension of Desuro. I think that's actually why it's so elegant and like beautiful. It is a game about: do I want to be aggressive? Do I want to be passive? Or do I want to be somewhere in between? And uh, how you kind of navigate that moment to moment is the game. I think it's a game. I think anything, any game where you're making a choice, is a, anything where you're making a choice is a game. Uh, you know, it's not like it's like AI or something. It just unfolds around you. Yeah, no, it's a it's a real fun it's a real fun little game. And I mean, honestly, like you can criticize it how you want, but the fact that you can play the game in five minutes, I think, means that no matter what it is, it's at least it's quick. You know, so can't really cannot really criticize it on that front. That is Bitter Board Gamers. We're going to go ahead and move on real quick to our main discussion. We're going to be right to that in just a minute. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Parts, where we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic this week, which is the history of app-driven board games. This is a topic that got some renewed uh, interest in the last uh, few months with the launch of Fantasy Flight Games massive, pricey, big-box dungeon crawler, Descent Legends of the Dark, a game that somewhat controversially entirely exists as... Well, it entirely exists as an app, but is entirely dependent upon an app to make it work. It has no uh, inbox functionality to be able to play it uh, as a physical game. Uh, And it may seem like this is a kind of a new phenomenon, but as Aaron's going to show us, this has actually uh, been a part of the way we play board games for a long time. Love it or hate it, the digital uh, mix of analog and software is something that people have been experimenting with and will probably keep doing so. So, Aaron, tell us a little bit about app-driven board games. 
So you know, we've this is something that we've we've talked about and danced around a bunch here on the Dice Pirates, and I was curious to see, uh, you know, how, what was what was the first game that came out that you had to have an app on your phone? And as it turns out, that's a tough question to answer because basically, as long as we have had a device in your house that you already own we have had board games that used that device. See, I, um, if you had put a gun to my head and I had to guess, I would have said XCOM. Uh, the, the XCOM board game from Fantasy Flight was one of the first big ones that I knew about. XCOM was... was I don't know if it's... it's it, I think it may be the earliest that required an app, or at least the, the first one that I could find just looking through board game. You know, it's not... It's a, a, a tough thing to specifically narrowed down uh but the first board game that had you know a, a board set out on a table in front of you and then you had software running on a computer came out in 1972 for the magnavox odyssey what, what? 1972 that's older than me and as has been established <laughs> i'm old there was uh, actually a whole suite of these games that used uh, used your your Magnavox a special overlay screen that went over on the thing itself, and then you also had a board and tokens. And the in the early games, mostly the computer just handled things like dice rolls or you know random encounters, things like that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought that was really, really... That, that's mostly why I wanted to do this episode, was because of the fact that since the 70s we've been doing this. and Wow. What was the name of the series of games again? I want to quickly look at it. Uh, so they didn't have a collective name, but we have, like, Invasion for the Magnavox Odyssey, 1972. It's basically Risk. Where you've got sure. the board, and then the console handles like combat systems and handles the the dice and all the math and all that for you. Later, we have other things like uh, oil barons, which uh, came out uh, just actually a, just a few years after that uh, in eighty. Well, a, like a decade later in eighty three, uh, but that was for like the Apple II. DOS computers, Commodore 64. So this was one of the first ones on actual computers. This was like roving around the board trying to find oil and sell the oil. And the computer would handle when you drill in a spot, is there oil there? So a lot of the, so it adds actual random number generation to games as opposed to just having a deck that you might flip over. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it, it, you know, again, it's it's mostly... Most of the early examples are handling the aspect of rolling a die or flipping over a card from an event deck, but making the game cheaper as a result, because all they really have to send you is a board and a couple tokens rather than all these other things. Mm. Um, there were even, and I was surprised at how few there were, I would have thought there would have been a billion, there were even a couple that required video game consoles specifically. Uh, one that I remember that I always wanted that I never got was called Eye of Judgment for the PS3. You, uh, you, you. Not only did you have to have a PS3, you also had to have the PlayStation Eye camera 
that would position over this board and you would play monsters out onto the board and then on your TV in like Yu-Gi-Oh style the monsters would come to life on the board and like actually fight each other which I thought was really cool oh my gosh how have I never heard of this what kind of like yeah, how, what kind of like weird wormhole did you pull all this information out of, uh, Aaron? This is amazing. I have judgment does look really cool, and it does have strong Yu-Gi-Oh vibes. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, I I really thought Nintendo. I really thought the Wii would have had a bazillion of these because everyone in America owned a Wii for mm-hmm. a period of of about eight months there. Uh, but surprisingly, as far as I could tell, Nintendo only ever came out with one and it was for the game boy advance and it was mario party and it used the weird e card reader that no one owned and you just you had a little board and you but you didn't it wasn't mario party where you're moving around the board you just played cards in front of you and then occasionally scan the cards to play a mini game on your game boy (laughs) and then the other person would either look at what you did or they would play after you and try and beat your score real weird entry to the series but you know it feels weird uh tangent but it does feel weird that nintendo hasn't yet put out a a mario party analog board game game board game that just feels like a gimme it feels like a gimme that people would buy that's but then you're basically playing life you know i mean like it's not that, that feels like it'd just be a real throwback to like the old you know paydays and Oh, make no mistake, it would be a bad game, but people would, oh, yeah, but no. that hasn't stopped that hasn't stopped people from right. putting out board games. <laughs> but here's the thing, here's the thing that you're here's the thing that you're discounting, Ian. It's gonna say Mario Party on the box. Mm, yes, yes, you are correct. And, and it will be There's the two million dollar idea. Yes. Oh no. <laughs> Available exclusively at GameStop this fall. So it sounds like for them there was actually a surprising number of these app you say like app like for lack of a more yeah, common parlance yeah, yeah well so they're it used apps but it necessarily was driven by them is it like when do you start to see like how did that progress from something that was like an ancillary thing that just sort of handled numbers how did, when did that progress to something more um extreme like when did you start seeing that move forward what was the next iteration of that really so, like Matt was saying, one of the basically the earliest example that I could find, at least of a game that was big and popular and everyone knew about, was XCOM, the board game designed by Eric Lang, uh, in which you would take your, preferably if you had an iPad, you'd put it on an iPad just because that way everyone could see it. Uh, but the game had two phases, one of which played out in real time, and the app would have a timer running as you were going so it not only functioned as a timer for the game it would also you'd have random events that would pop up and you'd have to respond to them in real time you know as the clock's clicking down you're working over here toward this objective but now all of a sudden they've touched down over in this city and now you have to all of you figure out right this minute who's going to go over there and deal with that because we need to go deal with that right now um they have been increasing in number and popularity uh you know some of them there were some that came out a little bit earlier like alchemists that had an app you could either put on your oh my god you could either put on your phone or tablet where you aren't required to do it uh and alchemists 
the way the game works is you're trying to brew a specific potion and the game is about combining different ingredients and seeing what happens when they interact you can handle that one of two ways one you have it on your phone or your ipad and then you can actually set it up so that everyone is linked up and everyone can use their own phones and you scan your two cards and you see what happens when they combine or you have a board that the game came with where it tells you how to set up all these combinations and then a person who is not playing the game has to sit next to you the whole time and look at the board and then you show them your two cards and then they tell you you got a small negative or a big positive which sounds like a fate worse than death. So it's one of those things where like nobody got mad about it because it wasn't required, but it did require a fifth person to just sit there and do nothing for two hours while everyone else got to play the game. Yeah, that sounds like the younger sibling, right? Younger sibling job. You, yeah, you're that's... gonna. This is the best. This is the best part of the game, Johnny. <laughs> you get to tell us what the cards do. Well, it does feel like it does feel like a lot of these early attempts at bringing the app into the board game is off either it's like offloading busy work and things that uh, would be really annoying to do with pen and paper, or in some cases even impossible. Like the XCon game, trying to make it run in real time and have all these systems going would have been pot maybe possible, but a real pain in the patukas. And then like even these early Magnavox games are all about kind of. Uh, having the the computer run information uh, and getting it away from like the player having to manage like decks of cards or other things. So it's a lot of this early stuff is really just about trying to like enhance or simplify the experience for players. It sounds like, which does lead to sort of the question I have is like because it feels like a lot of this was either not required. Or it's a lot of like smaller games, but the idea of like an app-driven game is like much maligned within the board game community. A lot of people have very strong opinions about it. If it's something that was a lot smaller or something that for the most part wasn't required, when did that start to appear? When did people start to push back on that? Do you, do you have like do you know when that sort of began? Uh, that's it's it's hard to nail down exactly when uh, everyone started to get mad about it. I know there was. <laughs> There was a lot of hullabaloo around, uh, specifically XCOM, you know, because it was it was the first really major game that you had to have a device and you had to have the app. And what if the app store goes down in 20 years and I'll never be able to play XCOM the board game again, which... Honestly, you're not playing it right now. If you yeah, it. I mean, it's... <laughs> you, haven't, it's... you haven't touched it in five years. Be honest. It feels like a silly argument to me. Uh, I, you know, I, I understand the appeal of of the preservation and always being able to go back and play games, but like at the same time, uh, I don't think that's really a, an issue. Well, um, what's interesting to me is the types of games that are using apps has really kind of shifted. Uh, the developers have really moved away from using the app to just be replace some dice or a deck of cards and instead it's shifting more toward narrative type games where you've got things like descent or chronicles of crime where you know you're telling a story and rather than ship one of those 500 pound spiral bound books where you know every turn somebody's got to turn to page 387 and read entry 108b to 
the other player, and then they have to say what you know, and then it's just a choose your adventure book with extra steps. Into we can put it on the phone and it reads it to you. There's narration, there's music. It really helps set the scene and really enhances the overall experience of that style of game. I can see why that would be the way you'd want to go with it. Although the question that I guess I'd want to ask you as well, Matt, is as you're describing this, Aaron, I can only think of one of my favorite games above and below and how different that game might be if instead of opening a book and uh, reading aloud what you're supposed to do, instead you were to have an app that would give you audio effects, maybe it would give you like a slight back, some background noise, it would actually read it to you and narrate what's happening. Do you think that game would have been served well by an app, or do you think the fact that there is people reading and that it's a tactile experience you do as a group, does that help it? Where do you think something like that would come down? Because it feels very similar to what these are doing. You know, I think your mileage is going to vary on that, but I, I think there are absolutely people that would prefer that way. I think there are people that would play above and below if it had an app versus having to read out loud to people because they think that's awkward and they don't enjoy it. And uh, as much as it feels really weird to us because we like above and below the way it is, I could totally see a version of that game where like you click on the app, the, the chapter you're about to engage in and some music starts playing and maybe even like an animated scene or some pictures like start to come up. That could work really, really well. Uh, I, I, I'm not prepared to say that like in all instances, like app intrusion into games is a bad thing. I think it's uncomfortable for some people because we're really used to the idea of this hobby being totally distinct from computer gaming. And I think it's sometimes we get a little territorial about that. Uh, and I think we just have to realize that like, you know, tablets and phones were the real game changer because in those early days when you're having to use your PlayStation or your computer or something, it was probably really cumbersome to like set the game up anywhere right. near the device to even Especially like make the... Especially when the computer took up the entire desk by itself. Exactly. I couldn't even imagine that like Magnavox like having to like haul that thing over to the table to like make that even work. But now that I can have a computer in my pocket... Uh, man, there's almost no reason not to when it makes sense, when it serves the game well. I think particularly narrative-driven games that could benefit from things like music or production values. I, I, you know, I think they're, I think this is probably good. Also, I think it's somewhat inevitable. So another appeal to me about, uh, you know, using, introducing smartphones, tablets, whatever, into board games is you can update the game in a way that you, you know, in a, a, a in a physical board game, you know, you've got, uh, like, Root has had, almost every time they've had an expansion come out, they've kind of included a sticker sheet for you to fix the rule book, where they discovered, okay, this needs to be balanced a little bit one way or the other. Uh, and in Scythe, you know, you've got uh, there. There's famously banned combinations of your nation and your action board because some combinations are just so powerful that they almost can't be beaten. Uh, so, in games like Descent or Chronicles of Crime, Destinies, there are these narrative things. You can update the game. So, if something is kind of weird or unbalanced. If the app handles enough of the game, then the app can fix that 
almost without you even knowing, right? You know, if you've got automatic updates turned on on your tablet, you won't even know that the game's changed. And obviously, I'm sure they would say that they had done that, but, you know, I, I think that's a cool aspect. Um, you've also got, I know specifically, and I only keep mentioning Destinies because that's the one of these that I own, um, they're going to be releasing software where you can make up your own scenarios because this is a scenario-based game. You play through a story, and like most of those games, once you've played through it at most twice, you're kind of done with it. So they're going to release software where anyone can take the physical resources that the game gives you and remix and recontextualize and create brand new stories and brand new campaigns for anyone to download and play and have. And, you know, that's that's a lot harder if it's just a bunch of cards. You know, there are there, there are plenty of, of fan expansions for games and stuff on BoardGameGeek, but those all require you got to print stuff out, you got to cut stuff up, you got to remember that when you get to this part, you got to reference this rule sheet, and being able to just put it all on your tablet and have it seamlessly integrate itself into there is a really fascinating design idea to me. Yeah, the ability to essentially mod board games in a way that makes it very accessible and easy to do. I mean, because obviously people have been creating their own units for board games. They've been making their own, like, maps and boards. and they, they, People have been doing that stuff since board games started. And, I mean, heck, some board games survived specifically because of that. It only lived on as a community-run board game, essentially. So it's interesting to see kind of a developer sort of approved method of doing that. And really, in many ways, it's like kind of blurring the lines of what has made board games board games. Because you, like you mentioned, you do see a lot where expansions will adjust and sort of change the games. And especially like in some games, like I believe it's uh, Firefly, where there is notable changes that were made to the rule books. Just like the developers are like, yeah, we didn't test it enough. Here's what you should play with instead. But being able to just change that without having to reach out to people so that everybody who has the game will get the updated rules. That's interesting. That That's a fascinating concept, and it could be really good. It's also potentially, I don't know, like the, the old man in me says, well, what happens if I liked the original? You know, what if I don't want to play with the, the updated rules? What if I like the broken old one, you know? And that's that's fair. I mean, there's there are absolutely criticisms to be lauded against this move. You know, I kind of poo pooed the notion of, oh well, what if I can't play the game in twenty years? But like, there are games from twenty years that people still play. So that's that's absolutely a valid, legitimate criticism. Or you know, like you're saying, if they do update the game and change the rules in some way if you can't yourself manually change that or roll that back, then that version of the game has been taken from you, you know, and then you're kind of in a, a Star Wars edit situation where you prefer the version where Han shot first, even though, you know, it has been edited since, and now it's hard to get a hold of that version of it. 
it does speak, I think, to sort of what do you personally like to get out of board games? Because one of the things I really enjoy is the interactivity that you get with people, the closeness that you have and the tactile experience of, you know, moving pieces and interacting with people in a way that you don't get to when you play something like a video game or you're watching a movie. And while I do really like the idea of having maybe like we talked about earlier, the idea of an increased production cost and having an app that gives you like an experience like the, the new uh, descent game that has a lot of effects going on. It looks very pretty, but I suppose like being able to balance that and keep it from being a game where everyone is just watching the screen and keeping it to be an actual board game where you're communicating with each other and not just focus on what's happening on the phone is I think something that will have to be balanced. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it all kind of boils down to moot because they're never going to stop making games where all you need is the stuff in the box. Like that's, that's, true. that's, that's, that's never true. going to go away even in the far flung future where nobody ever has to leave their house again. And we're all connecting ready player one style and the VR hollowscape. Like there will still be three companies left that are publishing physical board games. So like that's never going to go away. That's never going to go out of style. We as a species have been making board games for about as long as we've had leisure time, you know, as long as we've had time that we needed to fill with something we've been making games to fill the time with. So that's never going to go away. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's, you know, like we said, it, it's an inevitable step of progression. We have this technology. We're going to integrate this technology drop. So there was a game that came out a few years ago called drop mix, where you put the app on your phone, set it up at the end of this, it, it came with this, like, plank that you put on the table. It was barely a game. It was more of a toy. But you would play a card onto one of the slots on a little slate, and it would add that section of that song to a beat that was playing. So you might get the vocals from Call Me Maybe and the bass from Hit Me Baby One More Time, and then it would kind of mux them together and make it sound good. And you could just keep playing cards on each of these things and keep adding and remixing the song as you went. And it was a very cool game. It was a very good game. Uh, it's discontinued, and you can probably pick up all of it for fairly cheap now because it went away almost as soon as it came. Uh but I thought that was, I mean, that's an excellent use of combining the physical aspects of gaming with the things that you can really only do with the device at the table. Uh, you know, so Ian, something that, you know, you earlier, you, you didn't, you weren't really calling to it, but you said the word accessibility. And that's something that I hadn't even really thought about, which is common for people who don't need accessibility features in their life. Uh, but I think adding devices to the table has some real potential to augment the accessibility of board games. Absolutely. I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of situations that we've seen, especially in video games, where there has been an increased push towards making sure that everybody can experience the game, not just the normal groups. But I think especially when you're talking about board games, any any number, but just 
on in the most simplest way, I think not having to worry about learning the rules is one of the biggest ways that you can bring somebody in and experience a game faster. I mean, something as big as Descent and, you know, with Gloomhaven having its digital digital version now, like one of the things that you can do is it's way easier to just drop people in and start playing because you don't need to explain all the rules. You don't need to break down how everything works. As long as you have an app that's running the game for you, it's so much simpler to be like, all right, here's the deal. This you're just going to here is the action you take to move and the app will do the rest and you can enjoy the experience of the board game without having to worry about teaching it to everybody and making sure that everybody's on the same page. And I think that's I think that means a lot, actually, when you look at how big board games can sometimes be. It really helps to cut down the like barrier to entry in any way. Not to yes and my own point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's we, we have seen, especially in the, the last you know, especially in the last few years, um, a real, I don't want to say a rise in popularity, but a rise in people bringing attention to accessibility, specifically with board games and people making it a point to say to the company, you know, the publishers, like, hey, everyone should be able to play the game. And these are the things that you can do to make it to where everyone can play the game. Um, it's some of the, the, the people that I follow on the internet, you know, one of the main things they talk about when they start talking about a video game, is like, Hey, this has got these features that will be useful to you if you need them. And it didn't take away from the game to include them, uh, with, and I, I hate to keep coming back to it, but it's the only one I have with destinies, um, my wife, who is not a uh, huge nerd like myself, she's a regular nerd, uh, she loved that game. And I think a big part of it is that she didn't have to know, she didn't have to learn a crafting system for how these items went together. She just held it up to my tablet and scanned the two items, and then the app did the rest of it. So it, it absolutely made that more accessible to her because she didn't have to learn it. She didn't have to try and hold all of that stuff in her head at once that for people like you and me is easier and more common, but can absolutely be a detriment to some people. So, you know, if, if it, if the end result is bringing more people to sit down at the table and enjoy our hobby with us, I think that's, that can only be seen as a net good. So do you think that's going to be one of the biggest things as we move forward with app-driven games? Because, you know, we already talked about how, you know, it really began as a way to offload some of the busy work. And you still see that, of course, but it's progressed into more of like an experience to, instead of just decreasing the work that you have to do, actually augmenting the experience. Do you think we're going to see a continuation in that vein of increasing that, but also making sure that there are things added in to make it easier? Like, what do you think is the next step for app-driven games? So there's a game that came out a few years ago called Nyctophobia, uh, which is a, a game where you close your eyes in a dark room, and you're, when one player who is moving around the board, it is their finger in spaces on the board, and that's how they're controlling themselves, and they, they actually can't see, and they have to draw a map in their mind of where the walls and things are as they move through this maze. 
uh, and that was created by a young woman who wanted to play a game with her uncle without having to make accommodations or adjustments. And there have been, you know, I, I think things like that are wonderful, and I can definitely see situations where having apps do things, even if it's just a dice rolling app on your phone, you know, like there are things where rather than just have one person at the table who does everything for the other person, where if I can navigate a touch screen at least, I can still feel like I'm participating and I can still feel like I'm actively doing things rather than I'm just sitting next to you and you're doing everything and, you know. So I, I definitely see a future in which there are more games that, even if it's not necessarily required within the game, have supplemental apps that allow more people to be able to play that game. So in all your time that you were researching this, Aaron, is there any game that you saw that you were like, oh man, I really wish I could go back and play that? Uh, there was one that I saw called Assault of the Ogroids from 1987, which is just a phenomenal name of a game uh, where you start off on one side of the board and the it's a solo game against the computer. You're on one side, the computer is on the other side. This is from a time when computer games would come in a magazine, and I don't mean like it was on a CD. I mean like it was pages of text that you had to type in character for character into your computer, where you had to know how basic worked so you could understand if something went wrong syntactically, you could go back and fix it. Uh, and it just looks really cool. It looks amazing. It's... I'm not a huge, uh, I'm not a huge 80s game, hex and chits war game type player, but something about it just really appeals to me. That does sound super cool, actually. I'd definitely be interested in, you know, maybe sometimes some of those can get ported. That'd be, that'd be really awesome. That, of course, is the episode for today. Unfortunately, due to tech issues, Matt could not be here to give you guys the outro, so I'm going to have to run it through myself. But, of course, do reach out to us. You can find us on Instagram at the Dice Pirates. We do post fairly regularly, and if you do reach out to us, we will respond. We will be nice to you, we promise. Definitely keep an eye out next week. Another captain's log, some more news, some interesting developments coming out, as well as two weeks from now, we'll be having another episode of the main podcast. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. And as always, we'll be right here on the Dice Pirates. Mm -hmm.